Section 2 of Revolution by Mac Reynolds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Harvey. Paul Koslov, his face still bandaged following plastic surgery, spent a couple of hours in the Rube Goldberg department inspecting the latest gadgets of his trade. Derek Stevens said, The chief sent down a memo to introduce you to this new item. We call it a Tracy. Paul frowned at the wristwatch, fingered it a moment, held it to his ear. It ticked, and the second hand moved. Tracy, he said. Stephen said, after Dick Tracy, remember, a few years ago, his wrist two-way radio? But this is really a watch, Paul said. Sure, keeps fairly good time, too. However, that's camouflage. It's also a two-way radio. Tight beam from wherever you are to the chief. Paul pursed his lips. The transistor boys are really doing it up brown. He handed the watch back to Derek Stevens. Show me how it works, Derek. They spent 15 minutes on the communications device. Then Derek Stevens said, Here's another item the chief thought you might want to see. It was a compact, short-muzzled handgun. Paul handled it with the ease of long practice. The grip's clumsy. What's its advantage? I don't particularly like an automatic. Derek Stevens motioned with his head. Come into the firing range, Kosloff, and we'll give you a demonstration. Paul shot him a glance from the side of his eyes, then nodded. Lead on. In the range, Stevens had a man-sized silhouette put up. He stood to one side and said, Okay, let her go. Paul stood easily, left hand in pants pocket, brought the gun up and tightened on the trigger. He frowned and pressed again. He scowled at Derek Stevens. It's not loaded. Stevens grunted amusement. Look at the target. First time you got it right over the heart. I'll be, Paul began. He looked down at the weapon in surprise. Noiseless and recoilless. What caliber is it, Derek, and what's the muzzle velocity? We call it the thirty-eight noiseless, Stevens said. It has the punch of that forty-four magnum you're presently carrying. With a fluid motion, Paul Koslov produced the forty-four magnum from the holster under his left shoulder and tossed it to one side. That's the last time I told that cannon he said. He balanced the new gun in his hand in admiration. Have the front sight taken off for me, Derek, and the fore part of the trigger guard? I need a quick-draw gun. He added absently, How did you know I carried a forty-four? Stephen said, You're rather famous, Koslov. The Colonel Lawrence of the Cold War? The journalists are kept from getting very much about you, but what they do learn they spread around. Paul Koslov said flatly, why don't you like me, Stevens? In this game, I don't appreciate people on our team who don't like me. It's dangerous. Derek Stevens flushed. I didn't say I didn't like you. You didn't have to. It's nothing personal, Stevens said. Paul Kosloff looked at him. Stevens said, I don't approve of Americans committing political assassinations. Paul Kosloff grinned wolfishly and without humor. You'll have a hard time proving that that even our cloak-and-dagger department has ever authorized assassination, Stevens. By the way, I'm not an American. Derek Stevens was not the type of man whose jaw dropped, but he blinked. Then what are you? A Russian, Paul snapped. And look, Stevens, we're busy now. But when you've got some time to do a little thinking, consider the ethics of warfare. 
Stevens was flushed again at the tone. Ethics of warfare? There aren't any, Paul Koslov snapped. There hasn't been chivalry and war for a long time, and there probably never will be again. Neither side can afford it. And I'm talking about cold war as well as hot. He scowled at the other. Or did you labor under the illusion that only the commies had tough operators on their side? Paul Koslov crossed the Atlantic in a supersonic Tu-180 operated by Europa Airways. That in itself galled him. It was bad enough that the commies had stolen a march on the west with the first jetliner to go into mass production, the Tu-104, back in 1957. By the time the United States brought out its first really practical transatlantic jets in 1959, the Russians had come up with the Tu-114, which its designer, old Andrei Tupolev, named the largest, most efficient, and economical aircraft flying. In civil aircraft, they had got ahead and stayed ahead, subsidized beyond anything the West could, or at least would manage. The airlines of the world couldn't afford to operate the slower, smaller, more expensive Western models. One by one, first the neutrals such as India, and then even members of the Western bloc began equipping their airlines with Russian craft. Paul grunted his disgust at the memory of the strong measures that had to be taken by the government to prevent even some of the American lines from buying Soviet craft at the unbelievably low prices they offered them. In London, he presented a card on which he had added a numbered code in pencil, handed it over a desk to the British intelligence major. I believe I'm expected, Paul said. The major looked at him, then down at the card. Just a moment, Mr. Smith. I'll see if his lordship is available. Won't you take a chair? He left the room. Paul Koslov strolled over to the window and looked out on the moving lines of pedestrians below. He had first been in London some thirty years ago, so far as he could remember, there were no noticeable changes, with the exception of automobile design. He wondered vaguely how long it took to make a noticeable change in the London street scene. The Major re-entered the room with a new expression of respect on his face. His Lordship will see you immediately, Mr. Smith. Thanks, Paul said. He entered the inner office. Lord Carroll was attired in civilian clothes, which somehow failed to disguise a military quality in his appearance. He indicated a chair next to his desk. We've been instructed to give you every assistance, Mr. Smith. Frankly, I can't imagine of just what this could consist. Paul said, as he adjusted himself in the chair, I'm going into the Soviet Union on an important assignment. I'll need as large a team at my disposal as we can manage. You have agents in Russia, of course, he lifted his eyebrows. His lordship cleared his throat and his voice went even stiffer. All major military nations have a certain number of espionage operatives in each other's countries. No matter how peaceful the times, this is standard procedure. And these are hardly peaceful times, Paul said dryly. I want a complete list of your Soviet-based agents and the necessary information on how to contact them. Lord Carroll stared at him, finally sputtered. Man, why? You're not even a British national. This is... Paul held up a hand. 
We are cooperating with the Russian underground. Cooperating isn't quite strong enough a word. We're going to push them into activity if we can. The British intelligence head looked down at the card before him. Mr. Smith, he read. He looked up. John Smith, I assume? Paul said, still dryly, is there any other? Lord Carroll said, see here, you're really Paul Kosloff, aren't you? Paul looked at him, said nothing. Lord Carroll said impatiently, what you ask is impossible. Our operatives all have their own assignments, their own work. Why do you need them? This is the biggest job ever, overthrowing the Soviet state. We need as many men as we can get on our team. Possibly I won't have to use them, but if I do, I want them available. The Britisher rapped, You keep mentioning our team, but according to the dossier we carry on you, Mr. Kosloff, you are neither British nor even a Yankee, and you ask me to turn over our complete Soviet machinery? Paul came to his feet and leaned over the desk. There was a paleness immediately beneath his ears and along his jawline. Listen, he said tightly, if I'm not on this team, there just is no team, just a pretense of one. When there's a real team, there has to be a certain spirit, a team spirit. I don't care if you're playing cricket, football, or international cold war. If there's one thing that's important to me that I've based my whole life upon, it's this. Understand? I've got team spirit. Perhaps no one else in the whole West has it, but I do. Inwardly, Lord Carroll was boiling. He snapped. You're neither British nor American. In other words, you are a mercenary. How do we know that the Russians won't offer you double or triple what the Yankees pay for your services? Paul sat down again and looked at his watch. My time is limited, he said. I have to leave for Paris this afternoon and be in Bonn tomorrow. I don't care what opinions you might have in regard to my mercenary motives, Lord Carroll. I've just come from Downing Street. I suggest you make a phone call there. At the request of Washington, your government has given me carte blanche in this matter. End of section two. Recording by Paul Harvey.